Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, the book of Revelation, chapter 6. The first half of Revelation chapter 6 that we studied last time is about what begins to happen on earth as the Lamb in heaven begins to break those seven seals on that secret scroll that was handed to him by his Father. And after each of the first four seals was broken, one and then another of the four living beings that surrounds God's throne orders a horse and his rider to go and to create war and killing among humanity. And each horse and rider is in some way associated with one particular living being. What that connection is, is vague. The wording may only indicate a poetic way of showing the involvement of all four living beings as God's agents. Or it could be that in some sense each one of those four living beings was in charge of one or another of those four horsemen of the apocalypse that was sent out along with the particulars of the catastrophe that they were to cause. Now that first horse was a white horse. It carried a rider with a crown and a bow. And we discussed that there is much disagreement within Christianity about the identity and purpose of this horseman. Some identify him as Christ. Others as Antichrist. Some identify the rider as going forth to fight evil. Others regard him as going forth to cause evil. The truth is that both sides of that debate have merit. That said, when we look at the overall purpose of the four horsemen, it is certainly not to do good. Among the same Bible scholars who declare the next three horsemen to be satanic in nature, there are also those who want to separate that that first horseman, the one on the white horse, from the group such that he's good and the rest are evil. Now there's, there's little in this passage to warrant this conclusion. Other, perhaps, than trying to kind of skew the revealed information to validate a a predetermined position on the matter. Clearly, the four horsemen were sent as a group to act as a group with each of them assigned a different task. But their overall goal was to sow evil and discord among humanity. Now the second horse was a red horse whose rider was given the authority to take whatever peace existed on earth and destroy it. The third horse was a black horse whose rider carried a balance scale. That symbolized commerce. The idea was worldwide famine whereby food became more scarce and therefore more expensive. It seems that the staples of life, wheat and barley, were the items affected most heavily because the oil, meaning olive oil, 
and the wine production appears to have survived the pestilence. Oil and wine were representative of the luxury items. So the idea is that while the average man and his family suffered greatly, the wealthy and the elite, well, they were able to weather the bad conditions rather easily. Why would God permit the rich to thrive and instead target the poor? Because this would likely cause tremendous class warfare to erupt, with social justice becoming the watchword. The fourth horse was the pale horse, more correctly translated, by the way, as a green horse. Its color was to denote its sickly condition. The rider was given two names, Death and Hades, or better, Death and Sheol, that is, Death and the Grave. So, thus, death and its aftermath were to erupt all over the globe on a massive scale. Chapter 6, verse 8 says that through war, famine, plague, and even through attacks by wild animals caused by these four horsemen, fully a quarter of all inhabitants on our planet will die. However, this is highly unlikely to occur in a proportional way. I think we can speculate to a small degree on how this might look. One of the things that caught my eye in these passages was how attacks by wild animals was going to lead to many deaths. That's kind of hard to imagine in our day and age. Is that just symbolic? Or even just an ancient possibility that has since bypassed us? I don't think so. We're already seeing the effects of burgeoning human population centers impinging on the natural habitats of wild animals. We regularly hear of bears rummaging through trash cans in, in, in suburban areas, coyotes roaming neighborhoods of tracked homes, elephants coming into towns and villages in India and Africa and killing villagers, and in places like Alaska, the number of moose versus human clashes are on the increase. So just as for humans, when the food supply runs short through some calamity, wild animals are also affected. And you know, they're going to go where they have to go and do what they have to do to survive. Humans and wild animals suddenly become competitors for the same limited food supply. The results are inevitable. Now naturally, third world countries and their vast populations of poor that perennially live on the edge of starvation would be the most vulnerable and they will be the first to be severely affected. Those of us in the West will likely be the least hard hit because our wealth and technology and government entitlement programs and science and efficient food distribution systems are going to mitigate the damage. Nonetheless, as we're already seeing in our time, any type of scarcity or perceived disadvantage 
or even political disagreement within our society is seen as gross unfairness and prejudice against one group or another of people and it takes very little these days to set off unruly protests and even mob violence. But when sheer survival becomes the cause, anger, fear, resentment boils over into panic, into anarchy, into civil war. Governments fall. New ones rise in such times, usually with a strong man at the helm. Strong man promises to be the, the deliverer of the masses from their plight. If only he is given total power. World War II is perhaps our most recent example of this as hard times led to the rise of Hitler and Mussolini. And the world is in many ways still dealing with the aftermath of that time. So these four judgments of God set upon the world that we read about in Revelation 6, 1 through 8 are but the first four of a total of 21 of them that we're going to read about over the next few chapters. And as we're shortly going to see, the character and the nature of these judgments, even if we're correct to call them that, by the way, changes once that fifth seal is opened. Thus there is disagreement within Christianity as to whether the first four judgments are God's supernatural wrath or they're symbolic of something else or perhaps they shouldn't be seen as judgments at all. Now clearly to me since the four horsemen of the apocalypse are spirits. They're not actual physical beings. And since they are evil in nature and not godly, then what we have is not supernaturally caused calamity like that cosmic God-directed fire that destroyed Sodom. Rather, it is human upon human evil increasing because of satanic influence increasing. And it is mankind pulling further and further away from godly influence. It's my position that most of this satanic influence is not of the supernatural kind. Rather, it's more about mankind allowing, even reveling in, our evil inclinations ruling without restraint. Greed, covetousness, our search for personal pleasure and profit, and the resulting foolishness that may include us harming our environment, misusing our land and natural resources in ways that lead to scarcity and to pestilence, then finally to famine. That's what I think is, going to, is, is the meaning of those first four horsemen, the first four judgments. It's not as though these same calamities have not occurred in ages past. They have. But it's the severity that's going to increase exponentially such that it brings the human population to the breaking point. 
Now, I'm not going to give a long list of examples, nor am I going to offer my own creative apocalyptic images. But one very real living example of what can happen is very close to home for Americans, and that's the nation of Haiti. Haitians, in their poverty, in their ignorance, in their just need to survive, have virtually destroyed their land and their environment. They and those seeking to take advantage of the illiterate and desperate population have denuded the hillsides of vegetation, which have caused the runoff from rain to wash their precious topsoil right into the ocean. Now they have less arable land with poorer soil than ever and they cannot grow enough food to sustain their population. There is no feasible way to recover that topsoil. The nutrient-rich soil now covers over the sand in the coastal waters and has destroyed some of the better fishing and clamming areas so the harvest of sea life is harder to get to. It's less abundant than in years earlier. Sewage systems are nearly non-existent. Human waste causes disease. Water supplies are insufficient. They're polluted. Haitians can only survive by massive ongoing aid from the West. If it's ever stopped, a huge portion of the population will simply starve to death. Now imagine what I just described to you on a near global scale. When each country is battling simply to grow enough food to feed their own people, let alone having a surplus to sell to others. So the underlying nature of what is being depicted by the Four Horsemen is more about what I would loosely label as tribulation and less about God's wrath. Although the line between the two in Revelation is, is a bit fuzzy. Let's look now at the opening of the fifth seal as the character and the nature of what is revealed changes from that of the first four seals. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 9. It's page 1538 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Revelation 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, for bearing witness. And they cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign ruler HaKodesh, the true one, how long will it be before you judge the people living on earth and avenge our blood? And each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants should be reached of their brothers who would be killed just as they had been. Then I watched as he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun turned black as sackcloth worn in mourning and the full moon became blood red and the stars fell from heaven to earth just like a fig tree drops its figs when it's shaken by a strong wind 
The sky receded like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was moved from its place. And then the earth's kings, the rulers, the generals, the rich and the mighty, indeed everyone slave and free, hid himself in caves among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of the one sitting on the throne and from the fury of the Lamb. For the great day of their fury has come. And who can stand? Well, just as we saw in chapter 5 regarding the creatures in heaven and the description of God's throne room in heaven, so too in chapter 6 regarding the martyred souls under God's heavenly altar, we must take this information in a decidedly Jewish context or the sense of it either disappears or it can just be allegorized into most anything one's imagination can make out of it. In chapter 5 we saw, for instance, how the colored stones um, used to describe the one sitting on the throne exactly matched the gemstone colors of the firstborn and the lastborn of the twelve tribes of Israel. Also how the gemstone color of the fourth tribe that produced the Messiah matched the color of the rainbow that overarched God's throne. We also received the imagery of the 24 elders playing, uh, playing harps and having holding bowls before the Lord and it matched the earthly rituals performed by the 24 courses of priests and Levites who used harps and bowls in the temple of Jerusalem. And with that understanding, then we're finally able to apprehend this close connection that's being described between the heavenly throne room and Israel. So now in chapter 6, in regards to the vision of the breaking of the fifth seal, we also see Jewish imagery, but it's of a different sort. Verse 9 says that when the fifth seal was broken... John was made aware of the souls of the martyrs that died for their faith living under the altar of the heavenly temple. And this entire scene sounds strange and almost out of place until we turn to the Jewish sages. It seems that the thought of the righteous dead and of Israelite martyrs being buried under God's heavenly altar or throne was already well established within Judaism. And so that's why we find it used in this vision. In the second century, Rabbi Natan Habafli wrote this, HaKadosh, blessed be he, took the soul of Moses and stored it under the throne of glory. Not only the soul of Moses is stored under the throne of glory, but the souls of the righteous are also stored there. In Avot De Rabbi Natan 26, we read, Rabbi Akiva used to say, Whoever is buried underneath the altar is as though he were buried beneath the throne of glory. So, Shabbat 152b speaks about the souls of the righteous dead being preserved under the throne of glory. 
Deuteronomy Rabbah 11.10 God tells Moses that he would elevate him to the highest heaven and cause him to dwell under God's own throne of glory that's surrounded by the cherubim, seraphim, and an untold number of angels. So John is being given a vision that incorporates standard Jewish understanding in his era. The point being that the notion of these believers' souls, these martyred believers' souls, buried under the throne of glory in heaven, was not a new Christian one given to John by God. It was already an established Jewish idea. And so naturally the reference from John's perspective, would be to the Jewish Messianic believers who had died for their faith. Might this include some Gentile believers as well? Christians, so to speak? Perhaps. But that doesn't precisely match with what we've learned so far, and neither does it match with what we're going to read when we get to the one, or more, one of the more famous chapters in Revelation, chapter 7. Well, the souls under the altar... Ask a question, a question that is often asked by people in the Bible and I can say is also one that I have asked God on more than a few occasions and I'm sure you have too. How long? How long? How long, these martyred souls ask, before their blood is avenged? How long before their blood is avenged by God, judging these evil people on earth who murdered them? Psalm 82.2 How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? Psalm 94.3 How long are the wicked, Adonai? How long are the wicked to triumph? Jeremiah 12.4 How long must the land mourn and the grass in the fields wither? The wild animals and the birds are consumed because of the wickedness of those who live there. For they say, he will not see how we end up. So the question coming from these martyred souls under the altar is but a continuation of the same question that prophets and kings have been asking for centuries. How long? before God finally stops not only the wickedness, but before He actually judges the wicked and condemns them. And when the martyrs ask God to avenge their blood, this usually sets off alarm bells in Christians. Because avenging, revenge, vengeance, this is supposed to represent a decidedly anti-Christian mindset and behavior. Usually to help soothe troubled Christians, we'll hear words from the pulpit to the effect that only God can righteously avenge. Humans cannot. It follows then that it must be wrong to punish criminals and especially wrong to execute murderers because that's a form of revenge that only God is supposed to inflict. I want to set the record straight on this point. There's a vast gulf between justice as defined by God and our feeling offended and wanting payback when we're insulted or maybe we're cheated. 
What the martyrs are asking for is that God play the biblical role of the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger. Central to the understanding of this God principle of the blood avenger is Genesis chapter 9. There in verses 5 and 6 we read, I will certainly demand an accounting for the blood of your lives. I will demand it from every animal and from every human being. I will demand from every human being an accounting for the life of his fellow human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by a human being will his own blood be shed. For God made human beings in his image. The big question, of course, is exactly who's authorized to take the life of a killer. In the days of Genesis, there was no police force. Justice was usually handled within the family. Later, as human society evolved into having cities and organized government, other systems to mete out justice were invented. And one of those systems involved the legitimate role of the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger. But then another question is to be asked. Is all killing to be avenged? The answer is that only killing that is not justifiable can be avenged. For instance, killing in self-defense is justifiable, should not be avenged. Killing the enemy in war is justifiable. It should not be avenged. Killing a thief who comes out into, into your house in the middle of the night, that's justifiable. Killing someone for angering you is not justifiable. Killing someone for stealing from you is not justifiable. So Exodus 21 lays out some of the conditions for distinguishing justifiable versus unjustifiable killing and the different levels of unjustifiable killing. Manslaughter versus premeditated homicide. And these all call for different penalties. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 19. Whoever attacks a person and causes his death must be put to death. If it was not premeditated but an act of God, then I will designate for you a place to which he can flee. But if someone willfully kills another after deliberate planning, you are to take him even from my altar and put him to death. Whoever attacks his father or mother must be put to death. Whoever kidnaps someone must be put to death, regardless of whether he's already sold him or the person is found still in his possession. Whoever curses his father or mother must be put to death. If two people fight and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist and the injured party doesn't die but is confined to his bed, then if he recovers enough to be able to walk around outside even with a cane, the attacker will be free of liability except to compensate him for his loss of time and take responsibility for his care until his recovery is complete. So the modern thought among a large number of Christians that the death penalty for murder is barbaric 
and that it ended with Christ is simply false. God generally expects a life for a life if the killing was not justifiable. Now the killing of believing martyrs is by definition not justifiable. A Jew or a Gentile who professes his faith in Christ and is killed for that reason alone is an unjustifiable killing according to God. Those martyrs who are under God's throne of glory or his altar are only asking for what is right and legal in God's eyes. And they hear that they will have their justice soon enough. You know, as I've, as I've addressed the issue of Islam in earlier lessons, a belief system that I characterized as the anti-Christ believers religion, I will also address that on the matter of martyrs and vengeance. Since Islam has reemerged in our time as a, as a real force. For Islam, a martyr is a Muslim who dies in the process of killing someone of another religion or even when killing someone from another and opposing sect of Islam. Islamic homicide bombers who walk into hotels and pizza shops and embassies and blow themselves up while taking the lives of many others are seen in Islam as martyrs to be admired. Martyrs are offered a special place in Islamic heaven for their murderous actions and then they're glorified on earth by their fellow Muslims. The Bible would not accept this behavior from a God worshiper and in fact regards this person as a murderer worthy only of the most severe punishment. In Islam, killing in revenge is regularly associated with what's called loss of face. Certainly Islam has a criminal justice system that punishes perpetrators up to and including the death penalty. But homicide in Islam, as often as not, is a means of turning one's shame into honor. Shame and honor form a social status system that has nothing to do with criminal activity. Shame and honor as a social system is not exclusive to Islam. And in fact we see this in action among Israelites in the Bible. Christ spoke against revenge in the name of restoring one's honor after being shamed in his famous turn the other cheek instruction of Matthew 5.38 and 39. So the martyrs under God's throne, here's the point, are merely asking for God's laws on murder to be enforced in heaven. This does not necessarily mean that justice wasn't done on earth. No doubt for some believers it was not, likely for a few it was. But when it comes to sin, we have to remember there's always a double jeopardy involved. There is whatever civil punishment a person might receive from a human government on earth and then 
There is what that person might receive when they die and we're judged by God. We can speak of paying one's debt to society, but that's separate from the debt owed to God for our sin. Prison time does not repay what we owe to God. That debt is not repaid and it remains due until and unless we confess, repent, and turn our lives over to Messiah. Well, the martyred souls, we're told, were handed a white robe. They were told to continue waiting a little while longer for justice. Now, the white robe indicates absolute purity. However, since these are martyrs, it also may well be taken as a reward for persevering in their faith even unto death. The white robes then give us closure that for sure these martyred souls are believers because only believers in Christ are so purified as to merit white robes. The idea of waiting longer is a figure of speech because the issue of time in heaven doesn't exist. So the thought is that some things need to play out on earth before God begins to assert his vengeance on behalf of these martyrs. Now, what might rightfully frighten us a bit is this. The remainder of verse 11 says that the waiting has much to do with being patient until the full number of martyrs has been reached. And since we know of never-ending Christian martyrdom, especially in the Middle East and parts of Africa, and we are aware of the biblical prophecies of the world turning against believers with a vengeance as the time of the end gets closer, then folks, we will soon be in the crosshairs. Maybe not us, maybe our children or our grandchildren, but we will be. Now we may think of faithfulness until death as more meaning not discouraged, not getting discouraged if we get sick and die. I think the admonition has far more to do with persecution and martyrdom than with the sorts of afflictions that affect all humans at some point or another. I imagine John thought that the wait for these martyrs was going to be very short. This brings up yet another issue. If we're to take take it that the souls of the martyrs are aware of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and their effect on planet earth and if there is truly a chronological sequence that we're seeing taking place whereby first these four horsemen are set out and then only afterwards do the martyrs under the altar beseech God for justice because after all they represent the fifth seal being broken then asking God when he might take justice on the murderers hints that the first four actions associated with the first four seals being opened are not seen by them as part of God's judgment upon humanity. 
a judgment for which they've been said, not yet, you're going to have to wait. If that's a correct assumption, then it lends credence to the idea that perhaps these four horsemen represent increased tribulation, defined as man's inhumanity against their fellow man, but not God judging and pouring out His supernatural wrath. But now, with the fifth seal, there's really nothing that occurs but that the martyred souls are given white robes and told to wait. In other words, the first five seals just don't seem to be God's wrath being poured out in judgment yet. J. Massenburg Ford, in her comments on the fifth seal, point out that in some ways, trivial as it might seem, in fact, the issue of the martyred souls just might be the key to this entire chapter. This is because on the one hand, it looks backward at the martyred lamb of chapter 5 with whom the martyred souls identify, but on the other hand, it looks forward to the number of those seals and protected by God and of the configuration of the angels of chapter 7. For one thing, the seals of chapter 7 then must be seen in the context of the first judgment of God. And this comes only after the political, economic, and social upheavals that are caused by these four horsemen of the apocalypse implying that many of the martyrs are going to come out of that upheaval. However, we are bordering on the edge of speculation, so I'm not going to go any further with that. Well, in verse 12, the Lamb breaks the sixth seal. Immediately, there's a great earthquake. This, of course, smacks of something directly caused by God as a judgment. At the same time, the sun turned black, the moon becomes blood red, It is this passage that instigated the idea of the dreaded blood moons. Much to do about nothing, in my opinion. Next, stars fall from heaven to earth like a fig tree drops its its leaves and its figs in the sky rolls back like a scroll. There's been a lot of conjecture about exactly what this might be describing. But one thing is certain. While those four horsemen brought upheaval to human society, this opening of the sixth seal brings upheaval to nature. Are these descriptions literal or are they symbolic? We must acknowledge that the literature genre of apocalypse contains a lot of symbolism. On the other hand, not all symbolic. And so it's usually best in the Bible to take everything as literal that can be taken as literal in its plain sense. I see no reason to take these images of nature being violently shaken as symbolic. For one reason, Christ predicted earthquakes coupled with social upheaval. Matthew 24, 7 and 8. For people will fight each other, nations will fight each other, there will be famines and earthquakes in various parts of the world. All this is but the beginning of the birth pains. Isaiah prophesied about the sun growing dark. In fact, this verse is a direct allusion 
to this Isaiah passage. Isaiah 52 and 3. Why was no one here when I came? Why, when I called, did nobody answer? Is my arm too short to redeem? Have I too little power to save? With my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into deserts. They're fish rot for lack of water and they die of thirst. I dress the heavens in black to mourn and make their covering sackcloth. The prophet Joel spoke about frightening changes in the moon along with other happenings Revelation tells us is going to come about upon the end of days in Joel 3.1 After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And also uh, on male and female slaves in these days I'll pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the sky and on earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness. The moon into blood. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. At that time, whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as Adonai has promised. Among the survivors will be those whom Adonai has called. Now modern day humans would look to the skies and seeing all these things happening, think in terms of movies and even science documentaries that say that someday, regardless of anything humanity does, our sun's going to burn out, stars are going to explode, meteors are going to strike, a helpless earth once again bringing on an extinction level event. Jews of John's day thought of gigantic cosmic disturbances as directly related to the sin of mankind. And as John witnessed this vision, it was the thought of massive amounts of sin and its consequences that would have instantly come upon him. Turns out John would have been right and our science community wrong. For indeed, this catastrophe is being depicted has everything to do with God's judgment, his wrath for the sins of humanity that have piled up century after century after century. We are meant to notice that seven separate phenomena are recorded. An earthquake, the sun going dark, the moon turning blood red, stars falling, the heavens, meaning the sky, rolling up, mountains and islands moving out of their places, and global panic with no exceptions. Then within the seventh phenomenon, seven classes of people are said to be affected. Kings, rulers, generals, the wealthy, the powerful elite, common slaves, and common free people. Thus the idea is that we have not only completeness but finality expressed in this burst of sevens that the wrath of the Lamb and of the Lord God Almighty cannot be endured by anyone or escaped by anyone is because it's so all-encompassing and horrible. John alludes to Hosea's 
graphic description of panic from Hosea 10.8. Destruction will come to the high places of of, uh, Avon, that is, to the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow over, uh, over their altars and they will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. There's no place to run. There is no place to hide. Better, say, millions of traumatized people all over our planet to simply be crushed by boulders and get it over with than to keep experiencing the great day of the Lord's fury. I mean, this is such a sad commentary to end this chapter because we're told that instead of the vast world population of unbelievers, many of them, our friends, our neighbors, our family, coming to their senses in the midst of what has become painfully obvious. Instead of calling out to the God of Israel in repentance and begging for mercy, they'd rather be quickly killed on their own terms to end their misery and fear. Next week we'll begin chapter 7.